Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 132 of Yoga Land. Today, my guests are Melissa Townsend and Stephanie Snyder. You all know Stephanie Snyder. She is the owner of Love Store Yoga here in San Francisco, where Jason teaches weekly classes and also his teacher training modules. Steph obviously is a wonderful teacher in her own right and does her own teacher training modules at Love Story too. I've had Steph on the show twice before. We're good friends. And she introduced me to today's guest, Melissa Townsend. Melissa is an artist. She's also a longtime yoga practitioner, and she's studied Sanskrit on her own for 15 years. I shouldn't say on her own, but she's studied it just because she loves it, not because she is a yoga teacher. Melissa is also the author of two translations of the sutras. Well, I should say book one and book two. She's worked on those translations of the yoga sutras. She's currently working on book three. And incorporated in her translations are paintings and her own commentary. And they're so beautiful. And that's what we talk about today. It was incredible to talk to Melissa about her creative process and what it took to do paintings of each sutra in in those first two padas so far. And it was also just great to have Steph on and get her perspective. She's just loves the philosophical side of yoga and studying the texts. And so she has a lot of great things to say. And I wanted to have both of them on because they are doing a show at Love Story of Melissa's work where she's going to bring the real paintings. And it's coming up. It's December 14th. It's a Friday. It's from 7 to 9 p.m. at Love Store Yoga in San Francisco. And it's free. It's a community event. So please go check it out if you live in the Bay Area and support the work that this these amazing women are doing. It's just really an honor to know them and to be a part of this conversation was, was just a great experience for me. Okay. In other news, it's the holiday season. Are you guys going crazy yet? Can you hear that in the background right now, my daughter is like listening to a video so I can get this intro done. And my upstairs neighbor is playing his guitar and it's Friday night and our other friends are about to come over so we can go out and eat meatballs. It's just craziness all around. So I'm already thinking about January. I'm already kind of longing for January. And I'm going to create an invitation to self-care, a short meditation. I don't know what to call it. It's not a course. It's really just, and it's not a challenge. It's really just an invitation to sit with me. So I'm just putting that together right now. And it is sort of chicken soup for my soul right now. It feels great to be focusing on it. And I hope that It's of service to you and it's of benefit to all of us. So I will keep you posted. I'm going to start a registration for it soon and I'll let you know when I have it all ready for you. And you too can think about January and think, oh my gosh, I can't wait to get on the cushion. I can't wait to get on the cushion with Andrea. It's going to feel so good. It's going to feel so good. It really is. And uh, okay, enjoy this lovely interview with these lovely people. So, Melissa, I'm so excited to have you here and Miss Stephanie Snyder. So happy to have you here, too. And I'm really excited to talk about your books. They're gorgeous. When they arrived. Thank you. Yeah, they really are so stunning. I had them on my desk and Jason walked by and he literally like stopped in his tracks and he's like, what are these? I mean, they're just really, they're just really gorgeous. And he was actually about to get on a flight and he was kind of flipping through them. And I was like, no, you don't get to take that with you. (laughs) No, he's the king of like taking the magazine out of my hand and, you know, just starting to read it. So I was like, no, you're going to have to wait till you come back. (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's so great to hear. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before we get into the books, I I must know a little bit about the diversity of your background, because it's just really fascinating to me. I'll do like a whole bio about you in the lead up to this interview. So I won't list everything here. But One of the things that I'm really curious about is your background as a psychic. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious as to how that started and and which came first, yoga or is being a medium the same thing as being a psychic or do I just call you a psychic? I don't know. I mean, I think I don't really know. I mean, there's so many different words, clairvoyant, intuitive, psychic. 
none of the words really seems to adequately explain what the job is. Uh-huh. But uh, well, arguably, I was always psychic, so I suppose that came first. So you you kind uh, of knew that as as a child. I didn't really. I mean, so I didn't grow up in the kind of family where I don't even know if I heard the word psychic. If you had told me in my 20s that that's what I was going to be doing for a living, I mean, I really, truly would have thought you were insane. Uh-huh. I mean, I graduated from Brown University, like psychic was not really in one of the potential jobs that I was considering. Sure. I think that's why I'm so interested in hearing about it from you, you know, just having that blend. I always saw things, though, but I didn't really like... I mean, I think just like everything, learning to pay attention is kind of like the big, is the big thing. So I did always see things, but I didn't pay attention. It wasn't until a series of events in my 20s, you know, with a disastrous love affair, as is almost always the case, I guess. And there was a series of events that had to do with like, with a love affair that, you know, I thought this person, this person was the one, I was sure of it, you know. And I sat down to meditate and I I saw this series of images in my head that came up, but they certainly indicated that this person would not be the one. And I came out of it and I was like pissed. <laughs> so I mean, like, I sat down, like with the kind of arrogance that you could only have in your 20s, I immediately sat down again and the same images came up. And then I was pissed again. So I sat down a third time. And this time, like the images, I saw the same images. There was an increasing violence in these images too. And then they cleared and I saw myself walking through a grassy plain up a hill and this man came down from the hill or the mountain, like he folded his arms over his chest and shook his head at me like, you idiot, fine, I leave you to your own devices. So I stopped being able to see things and I didn't realize how much I paid attention, how much I um, relied on that until I stopped being able to do it. Then the relationship ended in the way that I had seen with all of the violence that I had seen. And then it was kind of like this light went on my head, like, oh, you know, this is a good thing and I should pay attention. And it's really about the paying attention. And then it was like the floodgates opened. And uh, a friend of mine at the time kind of freaked out when I said this, but I really felt like I was guided through a series of lessons by non-corporeal entities, for lack of a better phrase, through how to understand and access and use that my psychic information. It was a really powerful and transformative time. I mean, I talked about it like an epiphany at the time. And then I took time off. Uh, I had some money saved and one of my brothers lent me money and I just painted for a while. And during that time, I also, you know, taught myself and with a friend also learned astrology. Hmm. And I'd had tarot cards since I was young. By the time my money, money was running out, like I thought, well, what can I do? But since I has, wasn't, you know, making money as a, I wasn't supporting myself as an artist yet. And I thought, well, you know, I'll read tarot cards and poems at a friend's restaurant. This was in New York. And I had been waiting tables and bartending prior to that. And a friend of mine owned a high-end Mexican restaurant. So I asked him if I could read tarot cards and poems. I actually didn't know how to read poems. I just thought it would be a good thing to say mm-hmm. that I could read poems. <laughs> so... So I would like be looking at a book to like read the lines as I walked to the restaurant. But then I noticed when I held people's hands, I would feel and see things. Wow. Yeah. So, so then it just, from the beginning of starting to do it, I was able to support myself and I love the work. I really, really love it. It's like, it, cause you're talking to people about, you know, the most important thing you're talking about, about their life. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really powerful and important and it feels like a big honor to do this work. Yeah. I was going to ask, I have a good friend who feels that she is psychic and having been friends with her for years, you know, I can understand having sort of psychic or intuitive abilities about one's own life. Like mm-hmm. that that story you described about the breakup. I have one s- sort of similar life event that I won't go into, but um, where I was sort of seeing things and guided through things. And, but I, I've never understood how a psychic could do that for other people. So that's interesting that you say that when you were in, like when you were physically connected with them, that's when you realized you had that ability. Right. But I do a lot of work on the phone now also. And I would say that it's, it's not limited to being around the other person or touching the other person. I mean, how things work on that level is, 
is a mystery. I have no idea how or why that works. You know, but you're connecting to some other level of existence in which the boundaries of space and time don't have the same meaning. Hmm. So that's why timing is sometimes difficult to tell psychically, because you don't necessarily, it's not exactly the same. But I, again, I don't really know exactly how to explain it. But prior to even being a psychic, I did frequently talk to people about themselves and their lives. I remember saying to my father, who's a professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering, when he was asking me to explain it, I said, well, you know, I mean, I've always talked to people about their lives. Mm -hmm. I'm just doing the same thing now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do see things, you know, and I do see things that I don't have any business on some level knowing and not just the kinds of things that like you can, I mean, it varies from person to person and to what degree, but like seeing that somebody has a brother that like they didn't know about or you know, oh, wow. that kind of thing. And I, I don't really know. I mean, maybe it is like being a medium for something to come through. I really don't, I don't, I, I don't, I can't say that I understand how or why it works exactly. Other than that, you know, it does. Well, I feel like I would like to have a whole separate podcast with you about this because I just think it's really fascinating. And I, I love talking to people who kind of have the combination of like grew up as a, just a traditional Western, you know, modern person. And yet this seems to make sense. It's just really fascinating. I was just going to say, too, I've been on the receiving end working with Melissa and her work as a psychic. And it is just unbelievably accurate. I'm blown away every time. So um, I always tell people, I ref, um, people to you, Melissa, but I always That's say right. like, you know, <laughs> if you really, really, really want to know what's really, really, really going to happen, go see her. Right. Wow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Be really careful what you ask for. Right, right, right. Because you're right. going to get real information. So, you know, yeah. make sure that's what you want. Yeah. 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 And it's always been a, a wonderful, really, really nurturing experience too, right. working with Melissa. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Steph. And yeah. it, it should be validating. But yeah, this would be it. There's, I have a lot of stories. So this would be fun to talk about at some other time. Yeah. 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 I have to hold myself back from telling all the stories right now. I find it really fascinating that you know, you're an artist and that's a very intuitive, creative process. You have this background of being a psychic. That's very intuitive. And then there's all of this work that you've done with the mind in yoga. Do you see any relationship between the work that you do as a psychic and like the energy that you see or feel and then what you do in your own meditation or yoga practice? I feel a, a strong relationship between the work that I do as a psychic and like the work that I do with the books, with the paint, with the working with the yoga sutras mm -hmm. and painting them. I mean, I felt in retrospect, one could say, I, you know, guided towards doing it, but also in the process of working on them, like I felt, you know, for lack of a better phrase that the yoga sutras, especially with book one, that they told me what to do, that they showed me what to do, that they led me through the process, that it was almost, I would jokingly say to my husband, it's like I'm doing a reading for the Yoga Sutras, you know, mm. only I'm painting the answers. And when I first felt like I wasn't the one in charge of the work, it actually really, really depressed me and kind of made me feel really anxious and sort of freaked me out a little bit because that, this was my idea as far as I was concerned. And it was really unnerving to feel like it wasn't under, it, it wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't the one mm -hmm. in charge, mm -hmm. but it did feel like that the psychic connection to that was really like doing a reading. And the other thing I would say is that in terms of yoga practice, I did practice. So practicing yoga asana, which I like to describe as my gateway drug, it did feel like I practiced it from my early 20s on. I learned like with Dharma Mitra was my first teacher in New York back in the 80s when only like really 70s or 80s, only weird people did yoga, uh -huh. like really weird people. <laughs> yeah. And um, I always loved it and it always felt like coming home and it felt like like the like the actual asanas, the positions were like things that I had been doing all along, again, without having a name for it. Although I was totally freaked out by the chanting and he would play these like tapes of like chanting or of like people reading from the Gita. And at first I would actually even leave when that happened. I was mm. like, well, I don't, this is like a cult. I did find that practicing yoga, like in terms of being a psychic and doing that work and 
connecting to people on that level that part of what also at a certain point made me really, really ser- initially serious about practice was that it like it strengthens that part of the body, that part of the subtle body that makes you able to not just access because the access is separate, but to be grounded and connect to other people on that level without going off the rails. Mm. And maybe not taking on their right problem, like whatever comes up that you see for them that you don't take that on as well. Right. Yeah. And it kind of grounds you and it sort of creates a certain sort of endurance so that you can hold the space for that work to happen. Right. So I would say there's definitely a connection. I think that sometimes they do. I think, I mean, it's one of those, the psychic and clairvoyancy is, uh, is a city, you know, mm-hmm. but. Right. I would imagine so. And do you ever, like when you sit to meditate, do you ever have to sort of consciously think to yourself, like, this is not time for the psychic images <laughs> to come up? Or like, do they feel really separate? And when you're tapping into them? So I don't so much try to tap into images for myself. And if something comes up for somebody else while I'm meditating or something like that, or even for myself, I mean, I let it come up because I mean, it'll just come up and go away. It's not going to, pushing it away isn't going to help anything. Mm -hmm. And you sort of have to just like, you know, you have to trust the process meditating. If something comes up, then it's sort of important for you to access it. And I don't know about the two of you, but I mean, I often have to sort of shift my meditation practice around and go at it from different angles. Mm -hmm. And I find that it also changes like from time to time, like sometimes it's really important to try to connect to being the physical, sometimes awareness, like just trying to connect to being awareness. And sometimes it's more important to do something that's more like mindfulness practice or. Yep. You, you have to go at it from different angles. So. So it's just part of that process. Yeah. I was really interested at the beginning of the book, you talk about how the, the idea came to you to paint each sutra. And you mentioned that after years of practicing yoga and studying Sanskrit, that the sutras weren't necessarily your favorite text. Yeah. Can you tell the story of then how this idea came to you and, and what the the process was? You talked a little bit about that the process was a little out of your more out of your control in the beginning than you liked. But yeah, can you talk about the process as well? Uh, I actually got my studio in San Francisco by talking to by talking to somebody about my quote unquote plan to paint using Sanskrit. I'd been studying Sanskrit for maybe a year and a half or so at the time. But anyhow, this story actually isn't in the book. But I been you know chatting the way you chat with somebody coming to pick up their kid from a play date with my son who was about five at the time. And oh yeah, you know, when I get a studio, I'm going to paint with Sanskrit because it's a vibrational language said to move you forward on the path to enlightenment just by being around it. And I was getting ready to study the Shiva Mahimna Stotram, which I knew nothing about other than it was a hymn to the greatness of Shiva. And that just to have it in your home, not even Mm. to open it or read it or look at it, was said to please Shiva so enormously Mm -hmm. that it brought these incredible blessings. So I was talking to the father of the the girl. And um, he said, oh, you know, my wife has a large studio, which she often shares with people. She's not sharing it with anybody now. That sounds really great. Let me ask her. So then I got, I did, they, I did. So then I had to paint the Shiva Mahim, the Stotram, which like, so totally kicked my butt. It's like 43 verses. And at the time, like writing Sanskrit is not easy, you know, mm-hmm. not yeah. at least at first, not when you don't know, you know, I mean, yeah. it would have been like a year and a half. So that it took me, a, I had just finished painting the seven panels of the Shiva Mahim, the Stotram. It took me a number of years because I did the first panel and then I did like three more and then I tried to take a break but then something brought me back to it so I just finished I was cleaning my desk and suddenly I had this awareness that like I had always thought of the yoga sutras kind of like the ten commandments like you do this and then you do that only there's 200 of them (sighs) so that was why I didn't like them and I thought oh wait it's not the ten commandments it's like a mind training manual yeah and I, I have to I have to read this this is like I've had this all along this mind training manual and it's actually more than a mind training manual the mind in this system is like really low on the list it's a reality perception training manual but I was like oh my god I have to work with this 
so I thought, well, you know, I know that if I just think I'm just going to read it and study it, even since I, even studying Sanskrit, even taking Sanskrit classes, even talking to my teacher, Shanta, that let's do this. Like within three weeks, the book is just going to be sitting by the side of my bed. And I'm going to be looking at the outside of the book thinking I should really pick that up. So how can I make myself stick to this? How can I make myself stick to this project of working with the yoga sutras? I thought, I know. I'll paint them. Hmm. And I did hear that voice in my head go, are you nuts? I mean, I just <laughs> want to remind you that you just finished like something that took you years to do and like so completely like took you on it. Like it was tough. And I thought, no, 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 I'll only commit. I'll only commit to the first book that I'll just commit to the first book and it, it's fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> and, uh, I decided to do it because that was a way to stick to the project of showing up to the Yoga Sutras to, in my ideas, to work with them. But as I start off the preface of book two saying, you know, they, they say that you don't work with the Yoga Sutras, they work on you. And I would say that that's definitely my experience. That line stood out for me. So I want you to explain what you mean by that. One way of saying it is like that these texts, like the Yoga Sutras, they want to engage with you. They want to catch you off balance because it's only by being caught off balance that you can access something bigger than what you can think yourself through. Mm. So by showing up to, with, to any of these texts in whatever way you do, whatever way works for you, you know, chanting them, drawing them, singing them, I mean, they, you open yourself up to their energy to, and that's what they want, like on some level or whatever mm -hmm. energy it is that's responsible for these. They want to get in there and move that stuff around and catch you off balance and play with your perception of, yeah. Yeah, of reality, of yourself, of all of it, so that you are material for them to open up to something much bigger than what you think you are. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I think, you know, you painting them or, you know, chanting them or studying them, it's like you're fertilizing these seeds that can then, you know, over time, as you do whatever that practice is for you, it, you know, reveal itself in right. ways that are never ending. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And so in working with book two, so book one, like I was in love at the end of book one. I mean, mm -hmm. God, I've got to do more of this. And so I couldn't wait to get into book two, but then book two brought up all of my issues again, because it starts getting more into the heavy duty Samkhya stuff, yeah. Samkhya stuff. Yeah. And I was like, do I even, I don't even know if I agree with this. This mm -hmm. is like, I mean, these two like realities, I don't really buy that. That's not, so even knowing, like reading the words themselves, like the process of working on them like that also opens you up to the fact of Something like what Steph is saying, like they are what they say. There's so much more than what they say. Mm -hmm. There's an energetic element to them that both is what they're saying and what the original intention was behind them, but is also like so much more powerful. That's what the point is of showing up to them hmm. to connect Great. to that. The issue that you brought up of book two and the, the two realities and not being sure if you agree with it. I mean, I still have that. And mm -hmm. I had Richard Rosen on a couple years ago now and he was like I've never really heard him so I don't know he was sort of incensed about it <laughs> and I've always meant to kind of follow back follow up on that like within the podcast so this is, gives me a little bit of an opportunity do, do you feel like in working with the second book and doing the paintings that something shifted for you and and how did it shift I mean, first of all, it's a, it's a monotheistic culture. So most of us naturally tend towards the idea of an overarching, you know, reality, which is also more like Advaita Vedanta, or we're all really influenced by Kashmir Shaivism also, which is like Tantra, like, right. you know, everything is infused with, and that's more what I personally still tend towards. And some of that language even kind of creeps into the book as much as I tried to, you know, keep it from doing that. But so, so the first thing to say is that it is a it's a useful perspective. It's it's like the you know I mentioned also at the end of the introduction the the story about the six blind men around the elephant. Mm. So none of these descriptions we have for reality none of none of them are right. All mm. of them are just a piece of the picture. So the notion of these two 
it is helpful. It is interesting. It is something that can help you perceive reality differently to understand these two things as very, the, the, the seer and the seen as very, very different. Mm -hmm. It can help you appreciate each of them for what they are. I had this one experience where I was, you know, meditating and I was like, really try, I wanted to really like connect to the seer. And I heard this voice in my head go like, why don't we just stick with the scene? And it was like this whoosh. It's like the scene is enormous. Hmm. It is everything. It is your daughter. It's your feelings about your daughter. It's your mother. It's your, it's this green between your teeth. And it's you wondering if you have green between your teeth. You know, it's like, it's the planets and it's like a sneeze. It's every single bit of this Disney world <laughs> is the scene. And only when you start to recognize how enormous mm. that is, can you understand how enormous the other equal and eternal power the seer is. These two powers, whether you think of them as eternally separate or combined in a dance or whatever, anything that helps you recognize them is helpful. Yeah. I like that. That helps. Yeah. I think what you said too is interesting. The seeing the scene is part of that, you know, right. Viveka Kyati, you know, the supreme yes. discernment. I mean, that's really, yeah, I love the way you said that. Hmm. Right. I think that's it exactly. Like just by beginning to see the scene, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. become the seer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Hmm. Interesting. I'm really happy to be having this little nugget of this conversation because I feel like it's just not an explicit conversation that we always have in yoga. And it's, it's troubled me like for years. Right. To try to make sense of it all. Steph, I, I know that this is just totally your jam, mm -hmm. all of the philosophy. Yeah, I, I want to hear your thoughts too. And just obviously, you've known Melissa for a while. How did her books affect you when you saw them? And are there any parts that stand out for you? Well, yeah, I've no, known Melissa for a long time now, I guess. First, um, coming to class, I think, right, right Melissa? Yeah. yeah Stephanie's and then one of my favorite teachers ever. I can't, uh -oh. I have injuries now, so I have to do a very different sort of practice, but yeah. So yeah, Stephanie, I just love her whole approach to teaching and everything. So yes, my husband and I used to come to Stephanie's class. That's right. And we connected because we we're both moms and right. we got to know each other and I got to come and see you as a psychic. And I remember seeing some of the art actually at your house that is mind blowing. Mm. <laughs> and we shared our love of the philosophy. And, you know, I was really inspired by Melissa's commitment to Sanskrit. And, and so we really connected on that level of like real love for this, for the mm -hmm. teachings and, and true curiosity. And, and so when the first book came out, it was just I mean, I was so drawn to it for all of those reasons. You know, mm -hmm. we really share that wanting to kind of bite down on this and see what's there mm -hmm. and in, in just a really honest way, you know, and then the second book is, you know, the second Pada I'm obsessed with. So the second book, I could not wait to get <laughs> my hands on and it does not disappoint. And one of the things I love about her books is to me, you can feel it is palpable when you look at the images that everything she's saying is comes through, that she has really let the sutra work on her. And to me, it feels like, you know, that I think they talk about it with ice sculptures or something that, you know, you look at the big block of ice and then whatever's inside reveals itself. And the artist just tries to get to that. Mm. And I feel like her paintings really are that, that, and I don't know if I'm projecting, but it just feels like she has a good sense of what the sutras mean. She's done the studying. She's able to explain them in a very accessible way that's grounded also. 
And at the same time, I look at these beautiful images and I feel like she let the sutra reveal itself through her art instead of trying to interpret it for me. I feel like she's sharing what has come to her through her practice with us. And that gives it a lot more, I, I feel like weight and power. And when I look at these images feeling, you know, of sharing in that practice. I just, I, I cannot, I am obsessed with her books. They're so beautiful. I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I feel like the ability to do the artwork and then also interpret the sutra, each sutra, okay. which you did, and that they're, they do not feel separate at all. They don't, nothing, nothing feels like put on or compartmentalized. It totally feels channeled. Yep. It was really amazing. Really amazing. The process of the the painting, I would say, is also is very much like what it's channeling makes it sound like it's easy, but it's not mm. because they're also like teaching me. It's definitely my it's definitely practice with all of the things that practice means, which is sometimes it feels great. And sometimes it just sometimes you're like, oh, and sometimes you're you're led, to, you're told kind of like told that you have I, sometimes I feel sort of like told that I have to do something that I'm like, I can't do that. I, I don't know. how I can't. I did. That's way too hard. <laughs> But then there's no way around it. Like, that's what keeps coming. No, 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 you have to do this. No, you have to do this. No, you have to do this. And Steph and I, when you were, there was like the, the equipment stuff you were working with, Steph and I were talking about in, the, in book two. With book two, it, it was very different, the feeling of working on them. But in both of them, it felt very much like being the paintings, teaching me the sutras also. We were talking about the painting for sutra, 231. Uh, yeah, 231. Yeah. The one about the great vow, which Steph had said that was one of her favorite sutras. But me, as I was approaching this, I was like, I do not like that sutra. <laughs> that one, this is the one that tells me that I have to do this all the time and no way. <laughs> I knew exactly what I was supposed to do for it. And also, like, sometimes so I'll be working on a number of different, like, sort of canvases in different ways, like preparing them. And then like, sometimes I'll know which one I need to go to for each. I mean, I will wait till I know which one I need to go to. So I knew I needed to go to this red one and do the Fibonacci spiral that goes on indefinitely and forms like the, uh, what's it called? The golden mean. And then as I drew it, I mean, I, it's one of my favorite paintings in, you know, although I love them all after I finished it, I was like, oh my God, the great vow is not this like horrible thing. It's beautiful Hmm. it's this like incredibly elegant beautiful thing that you might not want to do you might not be ready to do but at some point you will do Hmm. and then its power is infinite yeah what you say (laughs) is it's the basis for the gold mean said to express the perfect ideally satisfying proportion which to me is the result of the Mahavatam you know the result of taking this great vow no matter what brings you that beautiful ideal proportion to your life Mm. right when I finished I was like oh oh wait that's what that's what it's about so the process it is very much like the sutras what Steph was talking about like the paintings also in in particular working with book two like they also taught me and at at the points too where I was thinking like I do not buy this I do not buy this stuff like the paintings themselves were like like so gorgeous and so I just I felt like they were saying oh no 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 you if you stop what are you going to do with us you have to keep going (laughs) so they were really speaking to you yeah yeah I want to say one more thing that just to relating to something you said earlier Melissa about the the process of going through one thing that I also am really struck by in your books is that each painting is totally unique Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. there's never a place where I'm like that feels not a hundred percent like its own unique experience. Mm -hmm. And I feel like because of that, it gives it this, like, for me, sense of honesty in each painting that I'm really intrigued by and like really draw draws me in. Yeah. So I really like, and this is sort of related to what Steph is saying that some of them are abstract and then some of them are more literal, you know, figures in the, Mm -hmm. in the paintings. Was that a conscious decision on your part or did it just kind of happen? Was it something that you at any point felt like, oh, they should all be abstract or they should all be? (laughs) Because also even in my life as an artist earlier on, I like, you know, when I was 
the whole thing. Am I going to do abstract? Am I going to be figurative? I like doing both. And, you know, by the time I started working on these, I was like, you know, that's just nonsense. It's just like painting. Yeah. So again, they really sort of guided what was supposed to happen. And with some of them, especially some of the ones in book one, like the one that's 14, the uh, the one with the pool of water and the drop, the one about practice, mm-hmm. practice is firmly grounded when like that one actually really, I, I got the, the sense that I needed to do that sort of image, but that really scared me because I didn't want it to be like an illustration. I wanted it to also still look like a painting. And it felt like that was way beyond my ability to do. <laughs> like, how was I going to make it look like a painting and also water with drops coming down? The, the one a couple before that for where it's actually it's Shanta's glove. He was my teacher. He was recruited by the Yankees. So I borrowed his baseball glove oh. for the one on practice and non-attachment. I mean, I did a drawing f- first and the drawing looked great. And then I was like scared to do anything to it because I was going to mess it up mm. until Shanta asked me for his glove back and I had to finish it. But I didn't plan any of them. The closest I came to planning was Somehow the the ones for the yamas and niyamas. So first the idea I think was the niyamas that came to me that I decided that it should all be like these Joseph Albers sort of images, you know, the squares. But I didn't really decide it. It sort of like came to me. And the ones for all the yamas are hands. And that also like, you know, so sometimes it would come like this is what it should be. But I never planned like I'm going to do so many figurative and so Uh many abstract and it's going to balance out. Yeah, yeah. It was more, yeah, you followed your, your intuition more than that. What came up. And mm-hmm. I like that there, that it's different. It seems that it, you shouldn't read through the sutras and think, oh, uh, it, it shouldn't become a, a rote experience mm-hmm. at any point. And the medium itself, I'm just curious, are some of them encaustic? Are some of them? Oh, that's an interesting. Uh, well, they're all oil on unstretched canvas with gold leaf. But I do use a wax medium. I don't use like the really strict encaustic you have to do on a rigid surface like wood because a non-rigid surface can't hold the wax. But Mm -hmm. but I do use a wax medium with some of them, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when I set out to knowing that I was going to paint at least 51 paintings, I had to think of like, (laughs) what am I going to do with 51 paintings? That's why they're that's why I decided to have them sort of be like scrolls in a way or like, you know, to be on unstretched canvas so that they're also easier to store. Right, right, right. Oh, funny. Yeah, these things we don't think about if we're not artists. Yeah. Right. The practicality. Not unless you've been painting for years and you have like, you know, a studio full of paintings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I can't have 200 of these. I just have to ask this question. I mean, it seems, but for both of you, are there any sutras that that you didn't have a great relationship to before the project and then it changed in the course of doing it or stuff in the course of reading Melissa's book. Well, I talked about one of them, Steph. What, what about you? Is there, are there any sutras that like you've had troubled relationships? I can, yeah. I mean, anytime you work with this, you spend time with the sutras, your relationship with them is going to change. But I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it's mostly been when I first started studying the sutras I just did take them so kind of literally and like, okay, you know, um, that's interesting. And I think that learning the context of the time Mm -hmm. they were written and who they were written for really has helped me deepen my understanding of, you know, how to interpret them and in context. And I've also, I also feel like just keeping that in mind that I've had a much more, been able to have a much more disciplined approach to them and, for me, this is also why I like the way that you, um, you don't over-translate them, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that there's sort of a tendency these days to try and fit them into the context of, you know, Western life or right. modern life. And I think that that does them a huge disservice. It really dilutes hmm. the teachings. And so, I agree. yeah. So I think that what I really appreciate about your books is that you keep it accurate mm-hmm. and it's accessible without being really diluted or dialed down, or you don't try to make it make sense. No. So I love that. And that's why I also love, maybe that's why I love your, the picture of, of the 231, because, you know, when I saw the spiral and how you explained the painting, I thought that's 
completely makes sense for me. You know, it was like, it's like when a teacher says something, you know, in class and in your heart, you recognize it as true, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's how this painting is for me. So I think that even though I loved the sutra about the great vows and the yamas of the great vow, that when I saw the painting and your explanation of it, I thought this is like such a true, honest representation of that. And I think that's my favorite one in the, in the second book for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's. What about you, Andrea? Just out of curiosity, have you had that ex- experience with? Well, it's funny. I, I, it's not that I didn't like this sutra before, but I really liked your. And I don't have the number in front of me. I mean, it's, it's like early on in that's... the first book, but I really liked your kind of recasting of Ishvara. You know, like that. You you say it's so much easier for us to think of when we talk about surrender, like a surrendering to a being, but you said, I think of it as a placeholder and a code word for supreme reality in its most abstract. I I just thought I was like, Oh yeah, that is it. That woke something up for me. I mean, there were so, there were so many, but that was one that really stood out because I'd always, that's something that I do struggle with is the surrendering to a being. It doesn't, it's never computed for me. So, yeah. Yeah. So lately I've been thinking a lot about, so thinking about practice and also at this time and like, what does it mean to practice? And then thinking back about, so I've been like revisiting the idea of Kriya Yoga, which mm-hmm. is, you know, like the down and dirt, the, the quick and dirty, you know, the mm-hmm. like, if you don't have time for anything else, do this. And thinking about like, so what does it really mean to surrender to God? I mean, do I even understand that? Yeah. What, what, what is this? Do I really ever do that? Or am I always thinking that I'm the one in charge? And I do it. One of the, I, ish is from the, to rule. Ish means is from to rule. So lately I've also been liking the notion of the one who holds the space for this to happen. The one in charge, like, mm-hmm rather than God, like a, some sort of higher power that, that just holds the space for it all to like, Hmm. and what does it mean to surrender to the notion of a higher power? It, you know, we think, take that, that of the three aspects of the Kriya Yoga. We think that's the one that's sort of easiest to understand, but it, but it's, it's not, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think early on when people when not obviously not everyone, but a lot of I remember being at Yoga Journal and when people would talk about it early on in practice, it's like, I think people bump up against it a lot. Like, mm-hmm. well, well, wait, what are you trying to get me to do? You know, right. like, I, think, I thought this was supposed to be non dogmatic. I yeah. think part of the, you know, what it facilitates, though, more importantly, is humility. And I think that that's just a really big piece that's mm-hmm. required for spiritual development and growth. Mm-hmm. And concept, however you can wrap your mind around it of Ishwara requires some, you know, surrender requires some humility. And I think what's so great about that is that it it disarms the ego just Mm -hmm. enough, hopefully, to create space for the experience of this supreme reality so that we can unhook from the relative reality. And through that humility, we are sort of less beholden to this very, very limited experience that the ego would have us bite down on or hook hook into so and that's um, the whole point yeah exactly yeah Yeah. and that's why Ishwara Panirana is so it's such a powerful Mm. tool that's mentioned again and again throughout the yoga sutras it's not just because it's like trying to get you to believe in God Mm -hmm. right it's just it's just really there's nothing more powerful and the whole point of the yoga sutras is to make you step out of your identification with exactly the limited being that you think you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, suffering is basically, I think, you know, the sutras kind of put it like it's a psychological glitch, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we got to clear that glitch up so that we can right. um, have the understanding of what yoga is. Right. And a big part of that is, you know, the e- dealing with the ego, you know, and that part of the chitta. Right. Yeah. For me, there's nothing that dispels like fear and day-to-day unconscious fear than remembering, remembering surrender, like, right. hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, you know, there's different ways that you go at it at different times. I mean, on one level, you can think like the sort of lilies of the field idea that, you know, God is taking care of me, whether I, and whatever is, is happening is for a 
bigger reason than I may see from my limited perspective, but you're still thinking for my general well-being. But like, but even bigger than that is like, it's not about my general well-being on any level. There's, it's not about me. It's about something much, much bigger than that that whatever it is that thinks it's me is really, truly a part of, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I yeah. also like that Ishwara is presented in the sutras as the vibration om, as, mm -hmm. you know, it's not mm -hmm. like a Krishna or a, you know, there's no right. specific attribute. Right. And I, I, I mean, I feel like that was very, it seems very deliberate, you know, so mm -hmm. that you can find your way into that. Right. Um, because it is never really defined in any specific way, like that, you know, so many of the deities are and things like that. That's right. true. Yeah. And that gets to something that is, I think, also really great about the Yoga Sutras that it's easy to yeah. miss coming from a Western perspective, which is that it's really open. Mm -hmm. It's really like, yeah. And it's also, it's not dogmatic at all. And it's exactly. not saying you do this and yet, and you do this and you do this. There's even it is like the sutra in book one, uh, 39, yeah. where he says, you know, if none of this works for you, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. pick something that yeah. seems uplifting to you and focus on it. You know? I totally agree. He says this or this or this, right. va, 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 you know, and right. in that way, it's just so generous. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And then we, you know, that's where sadhana is, the pada is so nice because then it's these auxiliary tools that he gives you with the eight limbs, you know, mm -hmm. that if you're unable to get to these focused points of concentration that he's describing in the first, and by the way, how exciting would that be if you could get there? Here are some right. tools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Patabi Joyce used to say that for those who were really like, right, just doing what is it, the a series one, that's enough. You know, it's like the people who, like right. all, there'd be all these people like, and I'm doing series three or series four. Have you started yep. series three yet? You know, it's like, because I used to do Ashtanga year, years yeah. before. And, and he would say, well, you know, for those of you who are really, really, the, the really high ones only need to do series one. Very clever. Oh, yeah. that's yeah. so funny. That's and so that's so kind funny. of like also the, the Kriya Yoga too. But like, as you go, like, any one of the simple practices could be just fine. But if it's not, there's also yes, this. Yes, exactly. Right. I want to talk about the event that's coming up. So, Steph, you're hosting Melissa at Love Story. It's December 14th, right? Yeah. So we are super psyched. You're, you can come yeah. and see these paintings, actually. So yeah. Melissa and I decided that it would be amazing to, and you know, at Love Story, Dharma is a big part of what we do. And I'm obviously very enthusiastic about the philosophy. So anytime we can expose people to that, I'm all in. And to celebrate Melissa's second book coming out, we're going to, uh, Melissa and I are going to have a little Q&A and discussion about the sutras where people can come and just listen and participate. And then and, you know, talk more about Melissa's process. And we're going to have all the paintings actually hung up yep. in the studio, mm -hmm. which is going to be incredible for people to see. We'll have her books there. And it's from 7 to 9 p.m. And it's free. You know, this is just a community builder for Melissa and I both are, you know, what we care about is getting the teachings out there. And right. so this would be just a great way to come together in community and check out the book and actually see the art in person. The art itself is really powerful all mm -hmm. together. It's really, I, I, on Instagram, I posted, like, I'm getting ready. I'm taking, starting to take them down from my studio. But, like, it's pretty, my studio is small, and they're all, like, hung up close together. It's a really powerful energy, like, you're just sitting around yep. the sutras. So that is great. And I'm, you know, and I'm really, like, I mean, for Steph and I to be, like, having a conversation about yeah. something that is just so powerful and meaningful both of us and you know for for others who are coming too it's really I'm so excited it'll be such a lovely thing yeah so awesome and I I think I mentioned to you guys my mother-in-law is in town but I think I think that gives me an excuse to have her do bedtime <laughs> and for me to sneak out because I really don't want to miss this like I really oh, want to see it yeah 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 oh yeah yeah I, that's wonderful yeah Please come. It should be a beautiful, really, really beautiful night. I'm very excited. I'm so happy to have that sacred art in our space. And I also just love having easy conversation around this stuff. You know, yep. I think it's really productive. Absolutely. I think so too. Yeah. It yeah. helps make it accessible. That right. too helps make it accessible to everyone. Yeah. I think, I think we all want to feel like we can apply these things to our lives. So if you bring it to your normal life on a Friday night, like 
what's better than that? I think it's so great. Yeah. So that's yeah. also the nice thing. So when I started doing this work, it was because I'd been the tradition of Sanskrit study that I come from is really a bit as a vibrational language. So and it really is the notion that this language is, uh, Shanta says it's like from, it's from down from the gods and the rishis, whatever too, but it, it's like a rope. It is not enlightenment, but it is something to lead us towards it. And that the vibration of Sanskrit itself, just being yes. around it. Hmm. So I started doing the paintings with Sanskrit to bring that energy into other people's lives. So there's that too, that like the idea of these paintings, it, it, even from starting to do them, I, I thought, well, you know, I can make a meditation deck for maybe for others and then end up doing the book. But I will probably do the meditation deck too. But the idea oh, you is should. that- That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm going to try to do that this coming year with the books, with these two books. And then, I mean, I've already started the paintings for book three, too. Yay. But the idea is that, that this is a way in. This is like a nonverbal way that bring the sutras into your life is what I'm kind of relating back to. Mm -hmm. that, that the paintings, the artwork, that this is something that can, in a gentle way, open you up to what they're saying. Yeah. Or in an accessible way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you've accomplished that very much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And Melissa, where, where, where are the books available? Are they available on Amazon? They are available on Amazon. Okay. They're also available on my website and they're available at Love Story too. Oh, yeah. Book one is also at Yoga Tree Valencia. And there's some places in New York that have had them. I don't know if they still have them. Dharma had, Dharma Mitra had them, had book one. But right now it's, Book two is at Love Story and at Amazon and on my website. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks so, so much, you guys, for your time and this awesome project. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'll put show notes with links to Melissa's books and her website and the Love Story event at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 132. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in so many ways. And just keep enjoying your life, dudes. Keep enjoying the season. Lots of love to you. Until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.